Open your Bibles with me to Revelation 20. We got time for three phrases while you're opening your Bibles. Somebody. Answer prayer. Two more. If you look. Amen. One more praise. Amen. Praise God for the children. We come to Revelation 20 in our story and study of this revelation of Jesus Christ. We live in a time in the history of the church, this time of Christendom where Christian and Christ are so freely floated about and the the largest entities of Christian churches during the time in which we live, live in a, a, a belief system that is called replacement theology. Um, replacement theology has this understanding that there was a time when God had to do with Israel, and now God has to do with the church, and it takes thousands of prophecies that were given to Israel, and there are many given to the church, and it places them all in the church. Um, So the things that are described in this chapter 20 um, are figurative in a sense um, that Christ came and set up his kingdom when he came the first time, and that We're living in this, what is called the millennium in Revelation chapter 20. And the reality is that, first of all, Jesus makes statements like, I tell you things ahead of time so that when they happen, you will believe. Jesus tells us things like in the book of Isaiah, like, I am God, there is no other. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. Prophecy and promise are married together in the Bible. We begin with promises in Genesis from the, when the first sin is committed by a human being, we are given both prophecy and promise in Genesis 3.15, and those promises continue to flow. So we have this, this book in our hands with over 27,000 verses in it. And actually about, actually it's more than that, it's about 29,000 verses. And about 9,000 of those verses are prophecy. And we think about the things that have been prophesied from Genesis 3 and from Genesis 12, 15, and 17, and all the way through the Bible, the, the virgin birth of Christ. We have the life of Christ, the death of Christ, Hundreds of prophecies are fulfilled through the cross alone. We have this um, time of the Gentiles prophesied by Daniel where he gives the beginning and the end of it and gives us everything in between of the nations that will rule over Israel. We have the, the realization of this seven years that we've studied extensively called the tribulation, a time of Jacob's trouble. And it seems so extensive, and yet it happens in just a few years. And would it surprise you that by far the most prophesied thing in the Bible is the millennium? It's not close. So when we study the tribulation, it seems like, well, that's what everything that God is focused on is this time of wrath on earth and this time of justice being laid out by Christ and the sword coming out of his mouth, the the promises of the millennium far outweigh any other event, any time period, any portion of prophecy than anything else in the Bible. So it will seem like we look at a lot of verses today, and we kind of will, but we're scratching the surface of the fact that when God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, 1 Peter 1.20, decided that they would create beings in the image of God, give them free will. 
Without free will, the Garden of Eden would have just carried forward as the kingdom of Christ, but it wouldn't have been with people who chose to love him back. There had to be free will in order for love to go in both directions. And because of that, the earth has needed to be dealt with multiple times. It needed to be dealt with with a flood. It needed to be dealt with with the northern kingdom of Israel, the, the southern kingdom of Judah, the sin that has continued to happen. But the kingdom where Christ will physically sit on a throne for a thousand years before the new heaven and the new earth there are thousands of prophecies to the Jews that without that time period, they would never be fulfilled. So we will break this chapter down into three sections. We're just going to look at the millennium itself and the prophecies today, verses 1 through 3. We will look at the promises to every, from patriarchs to Israel to church to tribulation to millennium, Every person that follows Christ in each of those is specifically promised a rule and reign and priesthood shared with Christ in the millennium. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we cannot efficiently or effectively grasp the millennium in less than an hour's time. But Lord, I pray that, that you will touch our hearts and remind us of the promises that are coming. The unfathomable, from a human perspective, reality that Christ will physically sit on a throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years while there is still free will on earth. Help us to better understand, in Jesus' name, amen. So we begin in Revelation 20. We're just going to read a few verses. We concluded the, with Armageddon, in a sense, and Christ's return in chapter 19, 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having a, the key of, to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So in the first seven verses, we won't read them all today, but a thousand years is um, a thousand mil years, millennium. Put those two together, you have the millennium, which is a thousand years. Verse 3, he threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So we learned from Matthew chapter 25 that hell was created for, for Satan and his angels. So almost immediately in the Bible, in creation, for there to be darkness covering the surface of the deep in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, something dark had to have happened because God does not create darkness. Something has happened, and I think Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 describe the fall of Satan. Satan is described as falling in the Gospel of Luke. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven when he cast him down. We go to Revelation 12, and we see the history of God and Satan, and we learn there that when Satan was cast down, that he took a third of the angels that were created with him. When Satan said... It is not good enough to be this guardian cherub angel. I want to be like him. Fall. And in that brief amount of time, a third of the angels said, you know, it wouldn't be a bad idea to be like him. We're with you. Fall. So the worst of those demons were cast into a place called the abyss. So if we remember the, the man that was possessed with the legion of demons in Luke chapter 8, and he casts them out. The demons plead with Christ, don't throw us into the abyss. And we remember in the trumpet judgment that one of the things that happens in the judgment is that these demons that were so vile that they were thrown into this abyss are turned loose in the tribulation with five months left. So now this abyss is going to be a holding place for Satan himself for a thousand years. 
and he is going to be turned loose at the end and actually gather an army of people who have rejected God, go against Christ one more time, and then he will be finally cast into hell. We will see in Revelation 20 and verse 10 where the Antichrist and the false prophet have already been thrown. Let's go to our Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. And we want to begin to understand this promise of the millennium. So Abraham was born in 2166 B.C. We are here in 2081 B.C. Abraham is an elderly man by our standards. He has just been into Sodom and Gomorrah and rescued his nephew Lot and rescued Sodom itself. Um, he has met with Melchizedek in response. He has had communion with him and he has given him a tithe and we won't get into all of that today. And he has been walking with following Christ, following this Lord, this Elohim, this Yahweh, Elohim, this mighty one, this Yahweh, this personally pursuing relational God, the one who walked in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, has been pursuing Abraham. No scripture for many more years, but he, he comes to Abraham in visions, and whatever he puts in front of Abraham, Abraham follows, and he puts something else in front of Abraham, and Abraham follows, and at this point, Abraham is like, I know that you're sovereign. I know that you're all-powerful. I just need to understand. I'm in enemy territory. I have an army of 318 men, and I'm surrounded. You told me before that I was going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky through a son. Where's my son? He has come to the place in God's bringing him along where we see for the first time in our Bible, Adonai. So Paul says to us in the gospel, you must confess him as Kyrios, as Lord, as master, as ruler, as sovereign over your life. So we sang in a song today, king of the universe, king of me. King of the universe, he doesn't need your permission. King of me, he needs your permission. So Abraham has grown in this journey to where we begin in Genesis 15, 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, and in the English it is sovereign, it is Adonai, Yahweh, for the first time in the Bible, he is addressed as the sovereign authority over all things. So he says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my state is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. So that verse is quoted multiple times in the New Testament. So Paul tells us, Romans 10, 9, Paul's preaching from Deuteronomy when he tells us, you must confess that he is Lord. Not just Lord, but Lord. And you must believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's the full revelation many years after Abraham. The revelation at this time is, you must address him as Lord. Adonai. Abraham calls him. And you must believe whatever he tells you is true at this time. Abraham believed God, 
and it was credited to him as righteousness. So this is our 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So what happens with Abraham is the righteousness of Yahweh is credited to Abraham's account. And the sin of Abraham is put on credit to the one who would go to the cross. So John 8, 56, Abraham saw my day, Jesus said, and he rejoiced. Abraham was told about the cross, Jesus explains to us in John chapter 8. So his sins were put on the cross that was yet to be, and righteousness was put on his count, the righteousness of Christ. Reading on verse 7, he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and take possession of it. So we have our first significant defining of the millennium given to Abraham in this covenant between Abraham and Christ, who he is speaking to, verse 8. Abraham again addresses him as Adonai, but Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, Adonai Yahweh, ruler of all things and personal relationship God. How can I know that I will gain possession of it? Very similar to Mary's question, not disrespectful, but how can I know? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer and a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. This is common to the Middle East at this time, it is going to be used by God with Abraham to bind this covenant. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. So he is prophesying two centuries after this moment, Joseph would become prime minister of Egypt. He would send for Jacob and his brothers to come and live there. The entire family, the Bible says, when gathered together by that time is 70 people. They would leave there a few million people. So he is prophesying to Abraham that they're going to go into Egypt, they're going to become a nation, and they're going to leave with great possessions. So God tells Moses at the Exodus, ask the Egyptians for articles of gold and silver and jewelry. And they do, and they come away with so much that when they furnish the tabernacle, there's a lot left over. And he's telling Abraham this in advance, in prophecy. Verse 15 you, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried in a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. Do you see in the perfect orchestrative power of God? The reason the Jews were in Egypt for 400 years is because these wicked Amorites had to reach a place where they're never going to follow God and they're entirely wicked so that it will be just when God destroys them. So two things happen in his perfect or orchestration. Seventy people become a few million while millions of Canaanites become wholly wicked. Similar to Noah before the flood, Peter explains all this in 2 Peter 2. So, verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land. 
Now this is interesting and important. Mark this verse in your Bible. From the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. The land of the Kenites, Kenazites, Kadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. When I was a kid, I learned them. At, I just called them the Badites. Um, but he's saying here, from the Wadi of Egypt to the Euphrates River, and if you follow the Exodus and you go through the book of Joshua and you watch them go into the Promised Land, they reach a point where, you know what, we're just tired of conquering. It's not their power they're conquering by, it's God's. But they just decide, we don't need to conquer at all. So they have enemies that basically they start worshiping their idols and they fall as a nation. But the point I'm making is that 2,000 years before Christ, Abram is told, this land will be yours, and it still isn't. And it won't be unless there's a millennium. Unless there's a thousand year reign of Christ, this promise cannot be fulfilled. So 4,000 years after Abram, we're still waiting for Christ to fulfill that prophecy. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. You'll notice in your notes there's going to be more verses than we have time to look at. Second Samuel chapter 7. So we're a thousand years after Abraham when a man after God's own heart, and I think we'll start to understand with the the shape and the makeup of the millennium, how much after God's own heart David is, because he will be prominent in the millennium. So a thousand years after Abraham, we've had Jacob not long after Abraham. Um, Abraham's grandson is 137 years old, and he's prophesying over Judah, and he says, you are a lion's club. You are like a lioness who prowls, and who will go against you? And he says, the scepter will not depart from you until he to whom it belongs comes and the obedience of the nations will be his. He's laying his hand on Judah and the Holy Spirit is speaking through him and Jacob's probably as amazed as Judah is what he's saying. But he's saying that until the king of kings comes, the scepter will be held by Judah and the descendants of Judah. So Judah is a large tribe, they're the best military tribe, and they become a nation, and they say, we want to be a king, or we want to have a king, just like everybody else. And God says to Samuel, they're not rejecting you, Samuel, they're rejecting me as their king. So he gives them a king like they would want, about a seven-foot-tall, strong, virile man who never worships the Lord named Saul. And then he chooses a man after his own heart named David. David has a life of ups and downs, but his heart is always given to God. And David has it in his heart, I want to build him a temple. I'm living in a palace, he's living in a tent. You're right to want that, God would say to him, but you have blood on your hand so it will be your son that will build it. And he makes a promise to him, and we pick it up in verse, um, let's actually pick it up in verse 11 of 2 Samuel 7. And have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel, I will also give you rest from all your enemies. These are all promises to David. Then he says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So, we're not going to read Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 and Psalm 72. We've referred to them essentially all the way through Revelation. But those are coronation psalms that David wrote when God gave him this promise so that Solomon became a picture of 
Christ, and David became a picture of the Father, so he would say to Solomon, directly through to Christ, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. And he says that you will rule the world. He is using the picture of David and Solomon to give us the picture of the father and the son. So the father says to the son in Psalm 110, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You will crush kings on the day of your wrath. This priest, king, king of kings, highest priest, Christ, is prophesied through David, and he says to David, now from this enormous tribe of Judah to this little clan of people that live in Bethlehem and watch sheep, this boy David is anointed, and a little while after that, after he's been king, he says, it will be through you and your son that I will set a throne that will be kept for my son. So when Christ comes, here's another promise. Here's another covenant that cannot be fulfilled unless there is a millennium. Turn to Joel, not the easiest book to find. Daniel, Hosea, Joel. My understanding is that Joel is the first chronological writing prophet, that's why we're going there next, that prophesied the return of Christ. So there are many prophecies before this time, but when we come to Joel, we're coming to a prophet who wrote from about 835 B.C. to about 796 B.C. And in verse 32, by the way, the, the preceding verses to this verse were the verses that Peter preached in the first sermon in the church because Peter rightfully believed that if Israel would have accepted Christ, Christ would have brought his kingdom. But in verse 32, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter preaches this in Acts 2. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. That finds its fulfillment in the millennium. Turn to chapter 3 in Joel, beginning in verse 16, this is Revelation 19, Christ coming um, to judge the world. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. And then he goes on to prophesy the millennium. Then you will know that I, the Lord, your God, dwell in Zion on my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day, the mountains will drip with new wine, just like they did when Joshua and Caleb and the other ten spies went in there. And the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. And we'll read that in Ezekiel and Zechariah more extensively if we have time. But Egypt will be desolate, Edom a desert waste, because of the violence done to the people of Judah, in whose land they shed innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem through all generations. Shall I leave their innocent blood unavenged? No, I will not. The Lord dwells in Zion. Let's go to the book of Isaiah and start in chapter 2. There's a sense that I'm more giving you study material than I am teaching through all of these because there just isn't time to do that. Um, but Isaiah has a thousand promises within one book in the Bible. 
Um, it is the most quoted of prophecy books by Paul and Jesus, and there are many promises, and they start early in the book. So we read in chapter 2 of Isaiah, the first five verses. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. This is Christ on his throne in the millennium. Many peoples will come and say, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And this is an interesting verse, verse 4. Um, we have the, all of the mockings of the final Antichrist kingdom in Europe, and we, we've talked about those, but in the UN building in New York City, in our country, this verse is quoted, and there's this enormous, probably about as big as this wall, granite statue that has part of this verse. The part that it doesn't have is the first part. Verse 4, he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes with many peoples. So they put the second half of the verse to make it appear that the United Nations and not God will accomplish this. So this is what is on that monument. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. That will only be true because Armageddon has happened and Christ is on earth. Verse 5, come descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Turn to chapter 11. So we have much of Christendom believing that whatever the millennium is or whatever the reign is, that's the church, that's us, this is now. When you start reading chapters like Isaiah 11, and you have a lot of questions. We'll begin with verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from the roots of a branch, capital B, will bear fruit. The branch is Christ. Verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions to the poor of the earth. This is Armageddon in the middle of this. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, Revelation 19. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. See if this sounds like something that you see today because people are saying we're in the millennium now. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling, yearling together and a child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand in the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So that's a, a literal description of earth during this time, that um, everything will be herbivores, like they were created. So we're basically, Isaiah and Ezekiel say it will be like the Garden of Eden. A lion will eat straw like an ox, and, and atheists mocking the Bible have taken fruits and vegetables and fed them to lions and tigers, and they thrive. And a great white shark in a video I saw will take green kelp off of a line when meat is right next to it. So I'm not saying that would happen every time, but I'm saying God is going to allow us to see what Adam and Eve saw, that a bear and a cow and their calves and their cubs 
will lay down together in peace. That there won't be any carnivorous, ferocious animals on earth. That a child will be able to take a lion by the mane and just lead him around as, as his pet. That a child will stick his hand into a cobra's nest and see what they feel like and won't be bitten and won't be harmed. This is creation undaunted by sin. And he's going to display it because he himself will be on earth ruling and reigning over it. Turn to Isaiah chapter 32. Like I said, there's, there's so many that we're not reading. We're just looking at what the world would be like if Christ judged and then ruled and his authority was right on earth. Chapter 32 and verse 14. The fortress will be abandoned, the noisy den deserted, citadel and watchtower will become wasteland forever, saying that there won't be wars in the millennium. The delight of a donkey, donkeys, a pasture for flocks, till the spirit is poured on us from on high, and the desert becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field seems like a forest. The Lord's justice will dwell in the desert, his righteousness live in the fertile field. The fruit of that righteousness will be peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. Though hail flattens the forest and the city is leveled completely, how blessed will you how blessed you will be sowing your seed by every stream and letting your cattle and donkeys range free. No fences. Animals running free. All safe. No wolves, no bears, nothing attacking, no one stealing because Christ is physically on a throne. Turn to Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51 and verse 1. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut, and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father. Paul makes clear to us in Romans 4 that if you follow Christ, you're a descendant of Abraham. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave you birth. When I called him, he was only one man. We saw that way back in Genesis. And I blessed him and made him many. The Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her descendants like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of singing. Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. Instruction will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. So I won't get into it deeply, but if you look at verse 3 there, is one of the reasons that I believe the Garden of Eden was in Jerusalem. If you do a, a study in Jerusalem um, of the land and what is under the surface, it is the richest land on earth. That's why Israel is, is such a hot spot. It's a hot spot because the Jews are there and they will always be there by the authority of God, but it is also the most mineral-rich land on earth. Um, and it is covered and it is tainted and doesn't look that way today because of the sin of Israel. And he is promising here that that will change, that it will be brought back. Turn to Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, and we'll probably just read a few verses in the interest of time, but we'll begin in verse 18. But be glad and rejoice forever for what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. 
I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who dies and does not, or who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. So that verse 20 there, these things are amazing to us. We read them in Genesis. That people lived nearly a thousand years. He is essentially saying that those who follow God during this time won't die. And if somebody dies at 100 years old, that person must have been cursed. That person must have rejected God. So there will be lifespans that point to the one on the throne, just like there was in Genesis. Turn to, we're going to go in the interest of time, Ezekiel chapter 34. Like I said, you have a lot of references we won't get to. in the interest of time, but Ezekiel writes an awful lot on the millennium. In fact, from about Ezekiel 34 on, it is pretty much all about the millennium and God dealing with nations who won't be there. But in Ezekiel chapter 34 and verse 22, I will save my flock, and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. We read that in Matthew chapter 25 and also in Ezekiel 20, exactly what he's talking about, the final Yom Kippur, if you will, for Israel. Verse 23, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David. So I don't, I'm not in God's chair and I don't understand exactly how and why and what he's going to do here, but clearly through Ezekiel, we read it in Isaiah, we read it in multiple other prophecies, David is going to be brought back to life as he was. And this man after God's own heart is going to shepherd them. If you went to, I believe it's Psalms 78 and the last verse that David shepherded them with a skillful heart that he was truly the shepherd after God's own heart. So in verse 23, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage, savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forest in safety. I will make them and the places surrounding my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. And we could read on there, but we're going to go to Ezekiel chapter 36. We've read it in Isaiah already. It's in other places, but the outpouring of the Holy Spirit the Apostle Paul says that at the rapture, the Holy Spirit will be taken out of the way. So this omnipresent being, just like the Father and the Son, who is currently restraining the Antichrist kingdom, will take his hand back, and the Antichrist will be revealed. The work of the Spirit comes back in full force in the millennium. So in chapter 36, we pick it up in verse 24, for I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from the countries and bring you back into your own land. And he goes extensively into this in chapter 37, if you want to study that there. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. He's talking to the nation of Israel, specifically Judah, the southern kingdom. I will remove, remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors all the way back to Genesis 15. 
You will be my people, and I will be your God. Turn to Ezekiel 46. And he explains here that people will be coming from across the earth to Jerusalem during this time. And there will be traffic control in the city and around the temple. And the traffic control is designed so that everyone that goes into the city will see two people. Everyone will see Christ, and everyone will see David. So the man after God's own heart, and God himself. And he kind of explains this beginning in verse 44. Oops, I'm in the wrong. Chapter 46, verse 8. When the prince, we saw chapter 34, David is the prince. When the prince enters, he is to go through the portico to the gateway, and he is to come out the same way. When the people of the land come before the Lord at the appointed festivals, whoever enters by the north gate to worship is to go out the south gate, and whoever enters the south gate is to go out the north gate. No one is to return through the gate by which they entered, but each is to go out the opposite gate. And here's why. The prince is to be among them, going in when they go in and going out when they go out. So there's traffic control in Jerusalem during the millennium so that you can't go into the city and turn around and go out. If I come in the, if I came in the north gate, I'm going out the south gate. David is going to be between those two gates and he's going to be the prince among them. This is a demonstration to us that God will explain to us in heaven how important David was to him. There's a, there's a simple verse in Acts chapter 13 and verse 36 that says, David served the Lord in his time, and then he died and he was buried. That's really a pretty good epitaph to put on a tombstone. David served the Lord in his time, and then he died. So he's going to be brought back to life. Turn to chapter 47. This is the power and the purity of Christ, not only spiritually, but physically. So Christ is going to literally be sitting on a throne. He is going to be in the temple, and water is going to be flowing out from underneath this throne that is pure and perfect, the living water. So Ezekiel is taken physically to experience what this is going to look like. Verse 1, Ezekiel 47. The man who brought me back to the entrance of the temple and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. And then he brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside of the outer gate facing east and the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and led me through the water. It was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through the water, and it was up to my waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that, could not, that I could not cross because the water had risen as deep, was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish. Fish, this water, because this water flows, there, there makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. 
fishermen will stand along the shore from the Engedi to the Engaleam. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea, but the swamps and the marshes will become fresh. They will be left, they will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and the leaves for healing. We get into Revelation 21 and 22, we will see that carried into heaven. I mean, if you think about it from a medical standpoint, just briefly, synthetics can do different things to our body, but they cannot heal. Everything on planet Earth that brings healing to a human body comes from a leaf, from a plant. So that in heaven, trillions of years from now, there will be a new tree every month that is for the healing of the nations. So exactly how it will be, I don't know. But I know that Adam and Eve would have lived forever if they had ate from the tree of life. And I know that there will be an obedience in heaven. So how he marries that together, turn to Zechariah where he looks at the same thing. If you think about this contrast today, because of sin and the things that have happened in that area, the Dead Sea is the Dead Sea. And it will be the most fertile, rich place on earth during the millennium because water will be coming into the Jordan and flowing down into the Dead Sea from underneath the throne of Jesus Christ. So in Zechariah, almost at the end of your Old Testament, we pick it up in verse 8. He is writing quite a while after Ezekiel. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea, which Ezekiel saw, and half to the west to the Mediterranean Sea in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord and his name the only name. The whole land from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, will become like the Arabah. But Jerusalem will be raised high. And the Benjamin gate to the site of the first gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the royal winepress, and will remain in its place. It will be inhabited, never again to be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. If you drop down to the last, or let's see, verse 17. If any of the peoples on earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord Almighty will, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. So he'll have this pure water as a demonstration, and if you don't worship him, you will have no water at all. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. There's a few quotes in your Bible there that we haven't read. We started, which I should have read to begin with. In Matthew 24 and verse 14, Jesus talking about the end times says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and the end will come. And we've seen that throughout the book of Revelation, these 144,000 witnesses, Moses and Elijah, the angels that he sends to preach the gospel, and Jesus calls it the gospel of the kingdom. That sounds a little strange today, but it has always been the gospel of the kingdom. So in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive that's the center of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then, Luke writes, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. That was Jesus' message for three and a half years, and when he rose from the dead, it still was. It was about the kingdom of God. 
turn to chapter 3 as we see the first preacher in the church, Peter, walking the Jews through this, verse 17 of chapter 3. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer, Isaiah 53. Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out. That times of refreshing, a Jew would know what that would mean, that's the millennium, may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, the millennium, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. And we've looked at those holy prophets a little bit. Turn to Acts chapter 28, the very end of the book of Acts. The preacher there, the apostle Paul, and we understand that he is preaching the same thing. The church is a part of God's plan, and the church is within his plan of the kingdom. Verse 30 of chapter 28, for two whole years, and this is where Paul wrote um, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon from this house arrest cell, for two whole years, Paul stayed in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and hindrance, or without hindrance. Um, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. There is debate on who wrote Hebrews. There's no de debate for me. There are so many things that point to the Apostle Paul that are unlike every other writing in the Bible and the way it is put together. I believe my understanding, I'll say it that way, my understanding is that the Apostle wrote this letter to the Hebrews about 66 AD, about a year before he died. And one of the things he's explaining to Israel is that Joshua didn't bring you into the Promised Land. He brought you into Canaan, which is a picture of the promised land. The promised land is the future. That's what Peter was preaching about. So in chapter 4 of Hebrews, he's explaining, Paul is, the millennium to Jews. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, I mean, it's still future, it's still awaiting, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. If your feet, feet don't follow Christ, your belief is not important to him. Um, obedience is always repent and turn to God and he will share his kingdom with you. Verse 3, Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God said. So I declare on oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest. He's talking about the, the rebellious Jews in the wilderness. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about a seventh day, in these words, on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God has set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David. We read that. As in the passage already quoted, Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, 
God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God that requires the millennium we're talking about. Verse 10. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their own works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So Paul keeps saying God has a seventh day. Jewish scholars, I agree with them and I believe that he is talking about periods of time. So in, in six days and 144 hours, God created everything. He wasn't tired, but he was establishing a Sabbath rest. The Jews went to Babylon because they did not honor the Sabbath rest. The Jews, except for a few, were kept out of the promised land because they did not honor God and the Sabbath. A day with the Lord, Psalms 90 and verse 4, is like a thousand years. So turn to 2 Peter, where, and we'll maybe stop with this, in 2 Peter 3. I think that in Hebrews 4, in Psalm 90, when Moses is writing, and with Peter here, he is not, neither Moses or Peter are saying time doesn't matter to God. It could be billions of years or millions of years. The, the, the church is hooked onto that. Well, it could be that long. If it is, then there are a lot of things in the Bible that are false. Like in the gospel, nothing died before Adam. Well, that was 6,000 years ago. So there has been nothing that died before that. So Moses and Peter don't say a day with the Lord is the same as a thousand years to us. He's saying God lives outside of time. He's under no restraints of time. We live in time. So time was created by Christ. That's why he's the everlasting father in Isaiah. Time, space, and matter began at an exact point. Exactly six days later, God rested for a seventh day. Another day of rest, I think, is referring to the millennium, a thousand years. So in first, Second Peter 3, beginning in verse 8, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like, he's not saying it's the same, He's saying that God is outside of time, is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. Paul is calling the millennium in Hebrews for a day, a Sabbath rest. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So Peter is explaining to people who are saying, he said that a long time ago. Where is he? Preachers are standing behind pulpits everywhere today saying, this prophecy stuff, you know, rapture, tribulation, millennium, that was written a long time ago by men who didn't know what they were talking about and they did the best they could there has never been a prophecy in the Bible that hasn't been fulfilled exactly the way God said it would be. There is going to be a thousand years on this planet where in the Middle East, in Jerusalem, on a throne, in the exact same place where Abraham was going to offer his son, Christ will sit. And the obedience of the nations will be his. And the Garden of Eden which I can't imagine what it looked like. I'll see it. Ezekiel and Isaiah say it's going to be like the Garden of Eden. It's going to be before sin tainted the earth. It won't be the last refurbishing, but when we see the millennium, when I study the millennium, think about the millennium, it's the only thing that can disrupt me thinking about heaven. Because the millennium is a day where the person who died for me 
I can touch him. I can rule with him. I can tell people in my glorified body, isn't he awesome? Look at this river. I want to tell you about the Dead Sea because I was alive when it, that sea was dead. Go there now and look. See that child over there playing with the, with the lion, playing with the snakes? He's making all of that possible. And you better follow him. Heavenly Father, thank you for the promise of the millennium. I pray that we will look deeper into this on our own because there isn't time to do it today. Help us to live each day with the reality that your Son is coming back. In Jesus' name, amen.